you know, a big part of entrepreneurship is just starting the journey and being willing to take action. Most likely you're not going to be able to do everything that you need to do on your own. And that's okay. That shouldn't stop you from, from getting started. So, you know, get involved with your local entrepreneurship community. There, there will be others who can help you succeed. And, you know, if you, if you're one of the people that like me before the launch factory, you don't have the idea in mind yet, then, but you think you want to be a founder, then check out Launch Factory or another startup studio because there are pathways for you to become a founder even if you don't have that idea of your own. Welcome to the In Factor conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and our next guest is the co founder and COO of Launch Factory, James Hereford. Launch Factory is a unique startup studio in San Diego, California, that develops business ideas, then recruits talented entrepreneurs and provides them with funding and incubation to help them get started. Prior to launching this company, James served in senior positions in companies such as Google, Chevron, and Innova Geophysical. He has a passion for entrepreneurship and technology, which clearly translates into this current venture. I hope you enjoy this discussion with James Hereford. All right, well, James, I'm so excited to have you with me today on InFactor. We had the opportunity last week to talk to your partner there at Launch Factory, Brad Chisholm, and today just really excited to continue this conversation, talking a little bit more about your background this time and your role at Launch Factory, and maybe a little bit more about the whole Launch Factory model. So thanks for joining me today on InFactor. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm really excited to be here. So I mentioned your business partner, Brad, we did a podcast with him last week and it was excellent, but the two of you together have launched something called Launch Factory or have started something called Launch Factory. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about sort of your background and what brought you to the table with this and what inspired you to leave a successful tech company to run this program. Yeah. Well, so you know, Launch Factory was really my partner Brad's brainchild in a lot of ways. And, you know, he kind of came up with this vision for a company and approached me about it. And when he was originally explaining the concept to me, I think there were a few points that he you know, had really drawn from to come up with the idea. And the first was that there's a lot of research that shows that startups fail for business reasons and not technology reasons, which is a little bit counterintuitive because a lot of times we think about startups just being the technology or the product that they have, but a lot of the failures are actually due to causes on the business execution side. And the second thing was, I think, partially because of both of our, our backgrounds in, in business, we felt that the use of robust processes and business operations best practices could really mitigate a lot of the business-related failures for startups. And then the third thing was that we felt that the person that has a startup idea may not always be the best founder. And that it's possible that you could find the idea first and then go and search for the best founders that are most well-suited to start that specific idea. So, so, so in talking with Brad last week, his background's in engineering, and it's really interesting to hear him come to the conclusion that it's not a 
tech issue, but a business issue. Is your background also on the tech side or were you on the business side or, or something out, else? Yeah, I started out in engineering. I, I spent about five years as an engineer before I went over to the dark side and went back to school <laughs> my MBA and I've been on the business side since. But you know, since then, I think my overall experience is, has really focused on strategic planning, business operations, program management, and then you know, with a dash of engineering and data analytics. That's great. So, well, let's talk a little bit about the model. I did dive into it a little with Brad, but let's go back and let's describe, if you don't mind, to describe for our listeners how the Launch Factory works, what your goal is, and maybe something about those processes. What's it look like to be associated with Launch Factory? Yeah. So Launch Factory is a startup studio. And what that means is that unlike a traditional accelerator or incubator, we identify business opportunities internally. And so we'll, we'll scout a bunch of different opportunities and either generate them internally or source them from tech transfer offices, corporate spinouts, startup reboots. And we do a lot of due diligence on those concepts. And once we find one that we are ready to make an investment in, then we go and we recruit founders to come and lead those companies for us. Okay. And then once we've found those founders, we incubate the companies for up to two years. We make a $300,000 investment of seed capital and provide a lot of processes and tools and a team of compensated advisors to help the founders get their, get their company off the ground. Oh, that's a great model. It's unique in a lot of ways because typically programs to help entrepreneurs require that the entrepreneur comes to the table with that concept, right? So mm -hmm. you all work on the concept and the opportunity. And when you say we, what kind of a team do you have there? I mean, what what's the team made up of? And I mean, how many people and what kinds of backgrounds and where from that sort of thing? Yeah. So other than Brad and I, we have four full-time employees and then often work with a, a lot of university interns at the graduate and undergraduate level. Mm -hmm. You know, one key member of our team, I think, is an individual named Alessandro Rinaldi. And he is a Stanford graduate and has done a couple startups and he's our director of innovation. So he really leads our process of evaluating new concepts and taking them through the due diligence process overall. And so that's kind of the day-to-day -day team. And then we have a, a very strong team of advisors as well. So we have Kim King, a former venture capitalist who has previously managed a $120 million fund at IDG Ventures, as well as a few others, notably Andy Ballister, the CTO and co-founder of GoFundMe. Mm -hmm. So we've been very fortunate to be able to, to build that advisory team, as well as a really talented team of young individuals to help us evaluate new opportunities and go through our recruitment process and then help incubate the companies once they're in the door. So what do you think for an entrepreneur who might be listening and thinking that this might be an avenue for them? What do you think are the key benefits of getting into a founder role this way versus maybe a more traditional way of you know, identifying an opportunity and then finding an incubator or accelerator program to help them? Yeah, to me, the benefits really boil down to the idea that Launch Factory is another co-founder for each of our new companies. And so, you know, not only do we provide the vetted idea that's had, you know, 200 plus hours of due diligence that has gone into it before it's been selected, and not only do we provide the 300K seed capital, 
But we also have a variety of tools and processes in our incubation that really help founders develop their strategy and focus on their strategy and spend less time on back office tasks and more time focusing on their business, their product, and their customers. And so during that incubation process, they have two years of free office space, free utilities, all of that. And then the last thing is that we use a portion of the carry from our fund to actually compensate advisors. So Mm -hmm. each of our new companies has a team of three to four compensated advisors that are really hands-on and working with the founders every single week and helping provide both industry experience and general business experience and make sure that the companies are forming connections with other individuals outside that may be able to help them and just making sure that they're headed in the right direction in general. Do you find, you know, because a lot of times these advisory roles are volunteer or at least they're, you know, options or stock-based or future earnings anyway, do you find that compensating in the current time period makes a big difference in this whole process? You know, whether or not it makes a big difference in acquiring advisors, I'm not sure. And to be honest, we do compensate, you know, with future compensation as well, because it's it's carry from our fund. Uh But we feel strongly that, you know, you get what you pay for. And by compensating advisors, it gives them sort of skin in the game to help the new company succeed and provides a bit more justification for them to really roll up their sleeves and work with the founders hands on. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe more commitment than they might have otherwise, especially if there's skin in the game. That's um, our hope. Yeah. And, you know, people like that are probably working with and advising a lot of entrepreneurs because they're highly sought after. So I can see how that would work. Now, is this a model that you developed, that you and Brad developed, or are there others like this? And, you know, we have at our university, we have our own programs to help entrepreneurs. So I'm always really curious about what other people are doing. Do you think this is a kind of program that could be replicated? Is it something you've ever thought about? I know everybody before they franchise needs to prove it out. <laughs> so you're still you're still in the early stages a couple of years in. But would this is this kind of a long-term vision that this might be replicated in other communities? And I guess if so, you know, are there certain elements in a community ecosystem, an entrepreneurial ecosystem that you think would be critical for this to work? Yeah, and we we do hope to expand, and I'll come back to that. So the startup studio model is sometimes referred to as a venture studio or a builder studio, and, and it's not unique to us. I think the first venture studio was started in the late 90s, and if I recall correctly, there's actually over 400 globally today. So it's not unique, but there are some things that Launch Factory does that at least as far as we know, appear to be unique to us. And notably, that is our approach to founders recruitment, where we you know, bring individuals in and they essentially compete over the course of many weeks to demonstrate that they you know, are the best founders for that particular company. So that is fairly unique, but, but we didn't come up with the model in general. And in terms of whether it could be replicated, I definitely think that it could. You know, One of our goals, our overarching mission is really to change the way that startups are pursued. So if we're successful, what we're hoping is 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, people think about startups and think, well, why would I do a startup in any other model than this? And so, you know, our current long-term goals are to 
scale our current office up to 10 companies a year. So we did two in 2020, we're doing four next year. And then over the next two to three years, we want to increase that to 10. And then once we have that scaled up and have all of the, the processes really figured out, then we want to start other launch factories in other cities. And whether that's a franchise model or some other expansion model remains to be seen, but, but we're definitely interested in expanding in that fashion. And when we think about those communities that we might go into, I think you know, some of the things that I might look for are a talented pool of both technical and business-oriented candidate founders, mm -hmm. as well as a community of active regional investors and a robust or growing entrepreneurship community. So let's go back to that talented pool of founders. How do you recruit and source your talent? I mean, where, where do they come from? I'm guessing universities is one source, but, but there's probably others. So what's the process for finding those people? Yeah. So, you know, that's been an interesting learning point for us. When we, when we first designed the process, we actually kind of expected to be inundated with grad students. But what has turned out is that while we do have plenty of grad students, our applicants have ranged from straight out of undergrad all the way to mid-60s retired person that's looking for, for something new and has 40 years of experience under their belt. And, and that's been really cool to Interesting. see. Interesting, yeah. There's such a, a wide range of interests. The recruitment process itself, how we find people, you know, our biggest thing is just to get word out about the, the process. So we try to partner with a variety of organizations that can help us make people aware that this opportunity exists. And the way the recruitment process works is that we will publish initially what we call opportunity decks. And so there'll be one deck for each company and it just explains, okay, you know, this is the general nature of this company that we're going to start. Mm -hmm. And then people can apply for the recruitment process. And, and that application process involves a very brief video where they pitch themselves and why they'll be a great founder. Some assessment tests that allow us to evaluate a few metrics that we're interested in for founders. And then eventually they will find a co-founder and they can either come in with the co-founder or we provide events where they can try to meet a co-founder and they'll enter our recruitment process in teams of two, usually a CEO and either a COO or CTO. And during that process, over the course of several weeks, they will produce work samples that are relevant to the company that they chose to pursue out of those initial opportunities that we presented. So in the first week, they might produce market research and you know, some early thoughts on branding. And then in a later phase, they do a product definition and then a go-to-market strategy. And eventually all this culminates into a business plan, a, a first draft of their business plan. And we bring them in in person, at least we did prior to COVID. Now it's, it's remote. Right, temporary. Right. But we have a panel of experienced angels and VCs that come in and we'll listen to each of the final team's pitches around our opportunities. And they help us go through those pitches and make that final selection of which team will become the founders. So as they're going through this process, what's the, the time frame for this? Approximately how long does it take? Well, so once the process starts, which this year will be around the 1st of March, it's roughly seven weeks with actually 
one of those is an extra week in that last phase. There's two weeks on the business plan, but every other phase is one week at a time. And prior to that, you know, we will open applications in November. So from November through roughly 1st of March is their opportunity to be meeting other founders, attending team formation events, and trying to find that perfect co-founder for them and select which of the opportunities they want to pursue. So that's fascinating. So do you draw people, you know, from any corporations and companies? I mean, are people working full-time sometimes and then doing this in the evenings and on the side? We do. And so, you know, that's one of the things we decided very early on. We did not want to develop a process that was biased against people who were already, you know, in a successful career. Mm-hmm. And so we've designed everything to you know, each, each week, the time commitment that is expected is roughly 10 hours per candidate per week. Mm-hmm. And we, we try very hard to make sure that the work samples that we're asking for can be done in that period of time. And so the way each week works is that the tasks are released towards the end of Thursday, and then they can be downloaded and teams can look at them. Friday afternoon, we have a kind of an update session and Q&A where they can ask us any questions. And then the deliverables are due the following Sunday at midnight. And so, so the entire process is designed, A, to take 10 hours per week, and B, to be something that can be accomplished over the weekend. And we know that giving up you know, six to eight weeks worth of weekends is a lot to ask. So each team also has a couple get-out-of-jail-free cards, which give them, they have two 24-hour extensions that can be used throughout the process in the event that they have a you know, specific schedule conflict for any given week. And then Monday through Wednesday, we are basically doing all the evaluations and judging all the submissions and making our decision as to which teams will move forward. And we release that Wednesday night so that then on Thursday, people can know that, okay, I've got another weekend ahead of me. So it, it kind of sounds um, <laughs> sounds like we could do a Netflix reality series on this, right? <laughs> kind of. we, we have thought about it. If any of us had TV backgrounds, we might have already done it. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, if you brought somebody in that could film and the stories that go along with it, I think that I'm definitely seeing an opportunity there. We, we might have to talk about that. Um, Yeah, I like that. So do you all work with them much in the process of figuring out how to provide these deliverables? Or is that part of the test? They have to figure it out on their own. It's definitely a, a bit of a part of the task. We try to make our task instructions as clear as possible. And then we have the Q&A on Friday afternoon where we take an hour and a half and they people can come and go. They can ask us any questions they might have. After that, you know, we summarize those questions and send them out to the group in case anybody wasn't able to attend. But we don't really start working hands-on in person with folks until the later phases. So once we get to the last two or three phases, then we, we switch out of that. Well, actually, we still have the Q&A format, but we have office hours where we will try to meet with each team in those final phases for you know, roughly an hour a week and have a chance to really talk to them in detail about the concept that they're developing, learn more about it from them, but also provide guidance as to, you know, some of the concerns that we might have or that we feel our BC judges might have. Mm -hmm. So do you find that these groups work with each other or are they highly competitive? Do they know much about what's going on with the other teams? 
Yeah. So, you know, our first year, we actually, we were only in San Diego. And so we actually had local in-person events each Mm -hmm. day. And we were a little worried going into it (laughs) that we were essentially bringing a bunch of competitors all into the same room together. But what we found, and, you know, when I think about the entrepreneurial community and spirit in general, this is in hindsight, not surprising to me, Right. but they all really came together. You know, they, even though they were competing, they supported one another. We had instances of teams helping another team out. And that was really cool to see. Last year, because we wanted to move recruitment to a national level, we actually did away with our in-person events and went all remote. And in that situation, most teams didn't just didn't have the opportunity to get to know one another. Some of them were able to kind of deduce who some other competitors were, but there there really wasn't much team-to-team interaction. And I don't think there will be in this coming year's format. Yeah. So you all were remote before it became sort of a requirement with this pandemic, right? Yes, for better or worse, it was kind of lucky. We had already decided to go fully remote because we wanted to recruit nationally. And so then when the pandemic hit, we kind of looked at everything and said, you know what, we are already set up to deal with this. And we were able to just continue moving forward. So that that process is fascinating. And once you get through that, then you now have at least one company, but maybe two companies or multiple companies coming out of this or because the teams get to pick right from a variety of opportunities. And so walk me through, you've done two of these two classes, so to speak. And and, and out of the two classes, you now have three businesses. Is that right? So yes. we started one company called OmniSync that mm-hmm. well in 2019, and then we we started two companies this year called Simply Independent and Productified. And next year there will be four companies. And so coming out of the recruitment process, we will actually start all four companies. And so you know our goal is to get the pool of interested candidates to a sufficient size so that there's there's plenty of teams interested in all four of the opportunities. And then, you know, over the course of that process, we down select until there there are three in finals and then one team is chosen for each opportunity. So, you know, with your engineering and math background, I'm sure you've started to look at this. How many teams does it take to start with to get to four? What are you thinking? So we aim to have between 15 and 25 teams. We set a max of 30 teams per opportunity. And the elimination actually works such that more teams are eliminated early on mm-hmm. than, you know, and then it kind of slows down and gives, gives the remaining teams more time to develop the concept. So overall, with my math on our acceptance rates and all of that, you know, we're hoping to have 1,100 applicants this year. And we'll, we'll go from those 1,100 applicants and form them into teams and eventually down select to only eight new founders. And so, and that, that fits, you know, last year we did two companies, we had 506 applicants and chose four founders. Yeah. So you pointed out earlier that there are other programs that match entrepreneurs and opportunities, but as far as you know, your process for selecting and matching is the unique element. Is that correct? So, so this is kind of a unique... Yeah. yeah, you know, in, in some respects, what we've kind of set up is a business plan competition where everyone is submitting a business plan for the same company. Yeah, yeah, we've and, done and that. I haven't encountered any of those elsewhere. 
Yeah, we've done that in grad in our grad program, but it's kind of a whole different ballgame. But you know, it works. I mean, that competitive element's kind of interesting. But you're right. I think entrepreneurs have a way of being competitive and collaborative simultaneously, which tends to work. So let's walk through a little bit. You've got three companies now that have made it past this. You're out recruiting and maybe some listeners will be in your next class, which would be interesting and fun. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I want to know if anybody listens to this and then ends up applying, that would be fun to know. But you've got three founder founding teams now that you're working with. So what do you do? What's the role? Do you mentor those? And do you personally do that? Are you one of, I mean, does everybody on the, you know, on the staff get involved in that? How does that work? Or is that the mentors that you actually compensate and bring in to work with them? Yeah. So they definitely have their advisors, but Brad and I sit on each new company's board, at least we have to date. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the amount of time that that I spend mentoring the companies tends to vary over time. When we first start the company in those first two months, when we're trying to get the company off the ground and really make sure that it's headed in the right direction strategically, at that point in time, I'm usually spending upwards of 15, 20 hours a week supporting all the companies. And then what we find is that as they move out of that planning and due diligence phase and start building their product, then we kind of start to take a step back, give the founders more reign. And so the steady state, I think I probably spend five to 10 hours per week supporting all of our companies together. And so, you know, Brad has one-on-ones each week with each CEO. I have one-on-ones each week with each COO. And then we have a core team meeting, essentially a board meeting each Friday. And so, so there's three hours of mentoring built in right there off the bat mm-hmm. for our founders. And then, you know, we have ad hoc meetings as needed to discuss product design or, or any other aspect. And then we have all of our other advisors and that work with the groups as well. Mm-hmm. And they stay a couple of years with you. Is that what I heard you say? They do. So we provide office space for, for up to two years and up to six people. So, you know, if they grow really fast and are doing great, we figure that's a good problem to have. We'll, we'll work out how we get more office space at that point. But yeah, we incubate for two years and then we do retain a board seat throughout the life of the company until its exit. And so one of the concepts that we are developing now that we're hoping to implement this next year is an idea that we're referring to as a strategic exit committee. And so when the company is formed from day one, there will be a small group of advisors whose only focus is what the exit pathway is for this company and what's necessary to get there, what partnerships are needed, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. We really Mm want to maintain that focus on that end goal, because that's really where the the success lies. Sure, sure. So let's go back a little bit. When, When we talk about sourcing these entrepreneurs and them going through this process, you know, it's not unlike the process of any entrepreneur trying to sell themselves to an investor, to a key strategic partner. And so I wonder, you know, you're starting to collect a lot of data on human behavior and what works and what doesn't work. And I'd be curious, do you have some thoughts on what works? In other words, which entrepreneurs are the ones that succeed with this? And then what doesn't work? Are there some fatal flaws or some key mistakes that you kind of see occurring among the ones that don't kind of get to the finish line on this? 
Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, one of the biggest traits that, w- that we look for are, well, I say one, some of the biggest traits that we look for are the strategic vision of the founder. You know, during the process, what we are really looking for is to see that the founders are developing a very well thought out strategy for the new company. And doing so in such a way that there's enough detail there that we believe that the the strategy can actually be executed. You know, a lot of times we do see people stay very high level with the strategy and it just doesn't give us much to go off of. So we want to see that the strategy, we believe it'll be successful and that it's really well developed. And then the other thing I think is grit, you know, during this process and during any entrepreneurial endeavor, there's a lot of challenges, you know. And, and we intentionally kind of simulate that in the process. In the six to eight weeks, we, we will push candidates very hard. And the ones that make it to the end of our process are the ones that are really committed to doing well. And you can tell by the time we get to those last six founders, I mean, they're, they're all in. They, they've spent eight weeks and you know, working very hard, developing their concept, building their passion for, for the concept. And we want to see that because... You know, at the end of the day, any business, the specific idea is likely going to have to pivot in some way. Mm-hmm. Something will change, market conditions will change, or you'll find something out about the customer. So, you know, that's one of the, the mistakes I think people make a lot of times when they when they do talk to VCs is they focus on their business concept and their idea and don't focus quite enough on their team and what makes their team so great. Because you know VCs know that the idea is risky. They know that it's going to change. What they want to see is that when things do change, that you have a team that is going to be able to pivot and push through and, and find a way to be successful. Yeah, great advice. I think that that's universal, really, for any entrepreneur. And that the grit is important, regardless of whether you have to go out and seek money or not, because every day there's something new to learn. (laughs) Roller coaster. (laughs) Yeah, it's a roller coaster. Let's go to the other side of this, the opportunity side. So in getting these, you know, one of the things I know about, I totally agree with what you just said, that I've never seen a business that that really ended up playing out exactly the way the founder or the originator of the idea or the concept thought. Lots of pivots along the way. And the ability, I think, to do that, to pivot is part of the success path, actually. So at what stage are your are the opportunities that you bring to the table? Have you already, you know, validated customers and do you have the technology protected? You know, is it kind of all over the place or is it still is it still a pretty raw concept that they then have to develop? I would say it's fairly high level. Some aspects we make sure to really dig into. In other areas, we stay high level intentionally so that the founders do have room to take it in their own direction. So The way our process works, we generally start with evaluating markets. So we'll look at specific market niches and really look for opportunities, you know, spaces that are sizable, growing, supported by good tailwinds, and that aren't too concentrated or regulated. And then once we see a market that we say, okay, you know, that could be interesting. From there, our biggest goal is to identify a specific opportunity or customer need in that market. 
And we spend a lot of time on that piece. I, I'd say it's where we focus the majority of our effort. So we start with a structured brainstorming process that we do internally to surface potential opportunities. And then we have a few rubrics that we use to filter that down. And then we go and we try to interview customers and run surveys and gauge just how burning of a need this idea really is for customers. And we, we call that stage our need validation stage where, you know, we may not have a full grasp of the solution yet, but we're trying to prove to ourselves that there is a subset of customers out there that really have this need and really, really want this, this product. Mm -hmm. And that's useful because that data that we learn about, you know, just how pressing the need is, what the willingness to pay to solve the need is, what percentage of customers within a given segment have the need, that all feeds into our market sizing calculations. And then once we've got a good handle on the need itself, a lot of our due diligence at that point actually starts to look very similar to what any entrepreneur would do when they develop a business plan. So we'll go and we'll round out our industry and market analysis. We'll do a deep dive on the competitive landscape and really make sure that we feel that there is space for a new entrant and that we understand strategies that can be used to successfully position the new company. And so the piece that I haven't mentioned yet is actually that solution piece, you know, exactly how we're going to solve the concept. Mm -hmm. And that's where we actually intentionally stay a little bit vague. So what we do is, you know, we'll outline a variety of different solutions and sketch out their architecture to an extent that's necessary for us to become comfortable with the idea that there is a solution there and that the solution could be produced and with enough detail that we can produce a fairly basic financial model so that we can understand the runway needs to get the company off the ground and total funding needs, things like that. But we stop short of fully specifying the solution. And the reason why is that when we bring these new founders in, they're going to take ownership of the company. You know, our founders own 66% of the company. They, they are true founders in that regard. And we want them to be able to look at their past experience and leverage their own skills and fine tune that last piece of the direction of the company to really match what, you know, the value that they bring to the table. And so we stay, we stay a little vague in that regard. And so I guess coming back to your original question, when the recruitment process starts, I think what we provide people is a great packet of research on the market, the competitive environment, and evidence showing that, that there are customers that have this need and that mm -hmm. it's a problem that is valuable to solve. And then we will give them a sketch of the solution. And from there, they take it in their own direction. And, you know, they'll go over that research in the first phase. And then later on, they'll actually produce a product definition and a go-to-market strategy. And they'll have that opportunity to develop their own vision for where they want to take the company. That must be really fun to watch. It is fun. It has actually surprised us just how divergent those views sure. can be. You know, if you take 20, 20 teams and you give them all the same problem, but let, give them a bit of leeway on developing the solution, people actually tend to take it in very different directions. And we actually like to see that variety. I think it, it helps us improve our selection in terms of not only finding the best founders, but also finding you know, which founders 
have that clearest vision about the best direction to take the company. Sure, sure. You know, in some of the work that I've done as an educator with assignments, I've done similar kinds of things. And I've always found that, you know, the entrepreneurial concepts are usually going to be some combination of who who the founders are, who they know and what they know, because they kind of bring their own secret sauce to, so to speak, to it. And that's what's really fascinating and interesting, I think, about this. You know, we mentioned this a little briefly earlier, but we are about nine months or so. 10 months, maybe nine or 10 months into a pandemic, which has changed the world and presented, quite honestly, a lot of opportunities along with a lot of problems and challenges. What do you see for founders going forward? Do you see that we're going to have a new normal? Are there some things you think that have changed permanently for entrepreneurship? You know, do you see some positives out there, negatives, changes, anything? You know, there could be. COVID has definitely altered things in 2020 quite a bit, and it's created a lot of challenges, which in my opinion also means it's created a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurs. For me, the thing that you know I've struggled with as I've thought about this, you know, because we've been going through our due diligence process as well. And then sure. you know, many times had a couple brainstorming sessions where we said, okay, what opportunities are presented now with COVID? And the challenge that we've had is that it can be a little bit difficult to know for sure which opportunities are permanent and which are temporary byproducts of the COVID situation. You know, for instance, will, you know, the level of remote work that we have now, is that really going to continue after COVID? You know, certainly I think there's probably going to be more remote work because I think we have seen, you know, at least a few years of digital transformation that have been compressed into nine months. But whether or not that will truly be the steady state, or if you know some significant fraction of workers will go back to the office, it's really hard to tell how that's going to turn out. So, you know, for founders, what I would say is if you have a concept that's clearly applicable in the current COVID world and you know gains or the opportunity is created by that, and that you feel also stands a good chance of benefiting from the broader digital transformations that have happened and are likely to survive past COVID, then that, that's great. And you know, it's worth looking into that and pursuing it. But if you're looking at a concept that is somewhat acute and is only applicable in this you know, narrow period of time when we are truly all you know, semi-locked down or fully locked down, that's where you should think carefully about whether or not you can personally execute on that quickly enough to capitalize on it. And there are some people, you know, some of those opportunities, very acute needs. Some people are in a position to execute on those very quickly because of either background experience that they have or resources that they have. And if so, that's great. But if if you don't have that, then you should really consider whether or not this opportunity will remain viable post-COVID. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. You know, I've had a number of people on the podcast who have identified opportunities and they've been able to move very quickly because as you said, they were already in that space and they could expand the product line or add, they could add masks, they could add PPE, you know, they could do those things, but hopefully we're not wearing masks forever. (laughs) The demand for those, I hope, will will wane at least somewhat, you know, and there's several other areas, but I agree with you to just go out now and create a company around something that, you know, could very well be short-term is probably not that that smart. But I think, like you said, I think there will be some long-term 
effects of this for sure. And it'll be really interesting to see what those are. And I'm sure some smart entrepreneurs out there are figuring it out right now. So I'm sure, you know, smarter than me. I, I wish that I had that crystal ball where I could. <laughs> right, right. We'd all like to be able to predict the future. This is the, the trend future. that's going to go beyond. But yeah, yeah. We'd all like to do, be able to do that. Well, James, I am so impressed and I loved hearing all the details and diving into what you're doing at Launch Factory with your team there your co-founder, Brad, and all the others that are a part of this. It's its really going to be fun to watch. And I'm looking forward to watching you and yeah, maybe even seeing you as the next Netflix series, you know, Launch Factory on Netflix. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Well, That'd thank be you fun. so much for, for having yeah. me. Before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions. If you had one piece of advice for our listeners, knowing that they're entrepreneurs and oftentimes, you know, students and want to be entrepreneurs, what would that be? You know, I think it would just be to take the first step. You know, a big part of entrepreneurship is just starting the journey and being willing to take action. Most likely, you're not going to be able to do everything that you need to do on your own. And that's okay. That shouldn't stop you from from getting started. So, you know, get involved with your local entrepreneurship community. There, there will be others who can help you succeed. And you know, if, you, if you're one of the people that, like me, before the Launch Factory, you don't have the idea in mind yet, then, but you think you want to be a founder, then check out Launch Factory or another startup studio because there are pathways for you to become a founder, even if you don't have that idea of your own. Great advice. And so how can our listeners find Launch Factory and find out more about what you do? Listeners are welcome to visit our webpage at www.launchfactory.com. And you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. So we would love to hear from anyone. And, you know, we are releasing our new 2021 companies in November and opening applications for our recruitment process then. So keep an eye out. There's some big news coming. Yeah. And let them know you heard about it on InFactor, right? Yes. (laughs) James, thank you. Really was fun to talk to you today. All right. Thank you so much, Rebecca. 